What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Stories this week include more compliance guidance from OFAC, the ComEd fine of $200 million in Illinois, and the Speaker of the House in Ohio charged with a massive corruption allegation. We ask, is the FCPA year 2020 crazy? Mike Volkoff goes Old Testament about the Amazon OFAC sanctions from the three lines of defense to the three lines model update. Mary Shirley tells us compliance is really a journey, at least for her. How is COVID-19 impacting compliance? The ethical revolution in business by Philip Winterburn and Jane Price. We talk about the podcasts this week on the Compliance Life and on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. That, some great webinars, and more on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen. This Week in FCPA, episode 215 for the week ending, July 24, 2020. A something's burning edition. Jay, as the Chinese consulate in Houston burns papers after its closures, people ask, were we being spied on in the great state of Texas? And what about the COVID surge that is causing us both to stay at home? But we're back to talk about some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. You want to just jump right into it? So that's not barbecue I'm smelling in Houston. That is kindling from top secret files, right? Top secret files. All so, right. Let's talk about yeah, OFAC. Yeah. Uh, Dick Cass had pulled a um, really interesting OFAC enforcement action where uh, it was a relatively small amount, $665,000 in fines and penalties against a Dubai-based company that was making uh, cigarette filters for cigarettes that eventually would find their way to um, North Korea. But what Dick focused on was the order and how it um, had some pretty good details around the compliance requirements of management. Uh, and it was really interesting that they were laid out in such detail and generally followed the OFAC framework. We uh, saw that was released last summer, but some of the things that management had to commit to and indeed uh, certify to in writing, management, senior management will review and approve the compliance program. Senior management uh, would uh, continue to support the OFAC compliance program. Senior management uh, would delegate sufficient authority and autonomy to a chief compliance officer. Senior management uh, uh, committed to having uh, adequate resources in the form of human capital expertise, IT, and other resources as appropriate. Uh, management, senior management committed to a culture of compliance. 
So when you get that kind of level of specificity, it's very interesting. And we may start to see that model in DOJ prosecutions as well, because in addition to being an OFAC settlement, in a parallel enforcement action, the DOJ charged the same company with conspiracy to violate international emergency economic powers and defrauding the United States. The company entered into a three-year DPA. This was the first uh, DOJ corporate enforcement action for violation of these regulations. So it may mean uh, that uh, more cross-fertilization between um, prosecuting agencies and regulators could lead to uh, some more specificity in deferred prosecution agreements going forward. So uh, not that there's not enough bribery to go around uh, the world, but we have some things happening in our backyard. We've got a couple domestic fraud things that I'd like to share with you. First story comes to us from Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance on his radical compliance uh, podcast and uh, blog blog site. And uh, Commonwealth Edison, a subsidiary of the energy giant Exelon Corp, and the largest utility in the state of Illinois, agreed Friday to pay $200 million to settle federal corruption charges that are also involved one of the state's most powerful politicians. This case is a reminder to compliance officers that FCPA-like misconduct can happen right here in the U.S. as well. Here are the particulars. ComEd had been accused of offering lucrative lobbying contracts and no-show jobs to associates of Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan, a longtime Chicago poll, and one of the most powerful Democrats in the state. In exchange, federal prosecutors say Madigan shepherded several pieces of legislation beneficial to ComEd into law. The misconduct goes all the way back to 2011, when Con Ed was wheezing under significant financial strange and continued into 2019. Madigan has not been charged with any wrongdoing yet, but the feds were delivering subpoenas to his office even as the U.S. Attorney for Chicago was announcing the settlement. In a statement of facts filed with the court, prosecutors say Madigan conspired with former state representatives who left public service to be a lobbyist for Con Ed. Those two, plus ComEd's former CEO and other senior executives or company lobbyists, worked to arrange some of the following favors. Two of Madigan's associates were hired in 2011 as subcontractors for one of ComEd's primary lobbyists. In 2018, ComEd then CEO Ann Parmigior stared another of Madigan's friends who was retiring from the city council into a lobbying job that paid $5,000 a month. And perhaps the most alarming, starting in 2017, Madigan strong on Pramagior to put one of Madigan's associates on ComEd's board of directors. As usual, or in this case, compliance saves the day. ComEd was charged with one count of bribery, and the company agreed to a $200 million fine, plus a DPA for three years, plus full cooperation against any other individuals. That clearly means Madigan and probably former ComEd executives as well. Under the federal sentencing guidelines, ComEd would typically have faced a fine of 240 to 480 million. million. So how did the company lop off, uh, end up at the $200 million range, 20% below bottom range? Strong compliance reforms, according to the DPA. Let's take a look. First, ComEd provided substantial cooperation. The company has parted way with former employees and third parties involved in misconduct. 
Third, the company created a new role of executive vice president for compliance and audit. Four, the company implemented new systems to track any request for something of value. Fifth, it established several new compliance policies, such as more sub, no more subcontracting or lobbying. And sixth, the usual clause, ongoing monitoring for all third-party lo lobbyists. Those compliance steps taken already brought ComEd's penalty down to $200 million. Next up, we have some corruption going on in the Ohio House. This story comes to us by Julie Warneau and Catherine Blunt of the Wall Street Journal. Larry Householder, Ohio's House Speaker, arrested on racketeering charges. He is being arrested for taking $60 million in bribes to champion legislation that propped up an Ohio utility and what prosecutors are calling the largest bribery scheme in the state's history. And that's saying something. The U.S. Attorney for Southern District of Ohio alleged Tuesday that the company paid Mr. Householder, here we go, a Republican this time, and other state operatives bribes in exchange for support of a bailout package that collected $1.5 billion from the utilities customers. Mr. Householder was instrumental in helping push through the bill, House Bill 6, which propped up two nuclear power plants owned by then bankrupt First Energy Solutions Corp., now Energy Harbor Corp. So it's uh, quite interesting that both of these cases involved uh, U.S. Uh, representatives who are one a Democrat and one a Republican, and both in the energy industry. So it'll be interesting to follow these cases of uh, domestic corruption as we learn more from Tom. So, Jay, uh, one of my favorite songs of all time, not limited to rock and roll, is Crazy. And uh, for those who don't know, it was written by Willie Nelson, fellow Texican. But uh, Bill Steinman says that the FCPA year 2020 has been crazy. And he bases that on the enforcement actions and the release of information, largely the FCPA Re Resource Guide 2nd Edition. And what he finds crazy is the Department of Justice taking a position antithetical to that of the Second Circuit in the Hoskins case. I'm not sure I would say the, um, the DOJ is crazy. I would say that they are setting out the position they believe is correct, and um, that's their belief. And until there's a definitive resolution by the Supreme Court, they can continue to do that. So he also points out that they take a, um, a different view now on statute of limitations, um, but the thing that I find useful about those positions, Jay, is that it's information from the Department of Justice. And if you find yourself potentially looking at an FCPA violation or a books and records criminal violation, um, that's information you need to know. So uh, I might disagree with the DOJ positions, but that's simply my disagreement. And if they want to take their position into court in a circuit where that's not been decided, that's certainly they have a right to do so. So um, I don't think uh, the FCPA year 2020 has been crazy, at least yet. Uh, the year may be crazy, but it's not because of the FCPA. But uh, Jay, can you talk to us about some Old Testament down-home gospel? Sure. This comes to us from our fellow uh, Everything Compliance uh, panelist, Michael Volkov, and it's from his Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog. How the Mighty Have Fallen, Old Testament 2, Samuel 1, 1, 19. The harder they come, the harder they fall, J. 
Jimmy Cliff songs might be more familiar to you. Amazon joins the exclusive club of high-tech OFAC violators. Last year, Apple settled with OFAC for sanctions violations. And this year, we can add Amazon to the list of OFAC violators. On July 8th of this year, Amazon settled with OFAC for $134,000 for violations from multiple OFAC sanctions programs. Amazon's violations stemmed from deficiencies in its sanction screening processes. And as a result, Amazon provided goods and services to persons sanctioned by OFAC in, crim, in Crimea, excuse me, Crimea, Iran, and Syria to individuals located and employed by foreign missions of countries uh, sanctioned by OFAC. In addition, Amazon failed to timely report several transactions conducted pursuant to general license abuse. This, these actions occurred between November 15, 2011 and October 18, 2018. Amazon accepted and processed orders from persons located or employed by foreign missions of sanctioned companies, including countries, including Cuba, Iran, North Korea, Sudan, and Syria. Overall, the violations involved low-value retail goods and services for which the total value was around $269,000. Amazon's screening system failed to fully analyze all transactions and catch this data. OFAC cited several examples which are helpful to understand screening failures. One, Amazon did not flag orders with address fields containing an address in Yalta or the term Yalta. Amazon did not flag or prevent shipments to the embassy of Iran. And several hundred instances, Amazon failed to flag correctly spelled names and address of purses on the OFAC SDN list. Here's how they got to the penalty calculation. Amazon earned a significant discount from the prescribed penalty primarily because of its voluntary disclosure and remediation efforts. The statutory maximum penalty for the violations was $1.038 million. OFAC awarded credit for Amazon's voluntary disclosure. In terms of aggregating factors, Amazon's lack of due caution or care when it implemented sanctioned screening process because Amazon did not properly review addresses. While most of the violations involved low retail and consumer goods, some of the transactions involved orders for personal security products. On the other side of the equation, OVAC cited the following mitigating circumstances. Amazon had not received the penalty notice or finding a violation from OVAC in the last five years. The company voluntarily disclosed the violation to OVAC, OVAC cooperated with the investigation and submitted detailed information. Amazon sanctions compliance commitments included investing substantial resources to improve their sanctions compliant program by actively engaging senior management on its compliance improvements. Amazon also agreed to employ internal and third party sources to conduct a thorough review of their sanctions compliance program. Finally, Amazon committed to one, enhance their compliance training programs by providing training tailored to the roles of specific teams and specific ad hoc training, and to incorporate and expand specific export control and sanctions provisions. In commenting on the case, the lessons learned, OFAC noted that global companies that rely heavily on automated sanction screening processes should take reasonable risk-based steps to ensure that their processes are appropriately configured to screen custom information. Routing testing of these processes to ensure effectiveness in the identify deficiencies may also be appropriate 
And moreover, companies that learn of a weakness in their internal compliance controls may benefit by taking immediate and effective action. So, Tom, this is not the first time we've heard about OFAC sanctions to a large uh, retailer with a computer background. So the question is, how soon before we get another one of these? Well, if the right things are going, uh, probably not too long, Jay. So, Jay, we had a uh, release from the Institute of Internal Auditors revamping its three lines of defense model for risk assurance. And it's now called the three lines model. And what it really does, however, is ask you to think about not risk uh, mitigation or protection from legal risk, but how uh, risk can be used to create value. And management of risk is really what drives business. So I think that's a, a really important shift in mindset. Um, and I applaud the IIA for coming up with that. Uh, Matt Kelly took a deep dive into it in radical compliance. So uh, check out his uh, blog post to really uh, understand the kind of nuts and bolts of the differences. But that conversation, and I know it's one that you and your AMI colleagues have, of the value of good compliance, of the value of having an independent integrity monitor, the value of having that second set of eyes on a problem or an issue or even a process can make that process more efficient because if you have an independent set of eyes, you can see things and test processes that uh, you really can't do if you design them yourself. So, um, but having really changing the entire risk management conversation from how do we protect ourselves to how do we use this for greater efficiency and indeed at the end of the day, greater profitability is an important step forward. And so I applaud the IIA for that, uh, coming forward with that, Matt. My, uh, Jay. No worries. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I also really respond to that whole proactive nature of the change in the model. So I think it's a good thing. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see some good things coming forward from it. Uh, next up, just uh, one of our most favorite people in compliance, Mary Shirley, co-host of the Great Women in Compliance podcast, uh, has this great article that she wrote for the Corporate Compliance Insights blog. And Mary offers insights into the lessons she's learned from 10 years on the road. Um, Mary's first foray into the anti-corruption compliance world happened about 10 years ago. She packed the bag. She was going to go do some work in Singapore, and she's been on the road ever since. Here are 10 things that she's learned about compliance over the last 10 years. First off, compliance is a customer-centric role. Our job is to listen to what our customer is saying, and especially what they're not saying. We need to figure out how we can best help them achieve what they need. Second, there is no such thing as the lowest common denominator. One way to define this is for test for it with culture of integrity surveys and other ways to gauge absorption and keep repeating our, our message, changing up the way we say it to appeal to different personalities. If a message isn't sticking, it's due to the communicator's issue. That's not my valued customer's fault. It's my communications that's the problem. We as compliance officers need to keep looking for ways to make a concept relatable and understandable until we found a way to make it hit home. 
Number four, at the core, people tend to be aiming for the same thing. Although we all come from different backgrounds, our intrinsic motivation leads us not to vary too much. Five, no one really thinks that they're the bad guy. Understanding this can help your line of questioning and treatment of a colleague in an interview. Six, my job is compliance. My valued customer's job is something completely different. It's unreasonable to expect my customer to know and be able to speak about compliance in the same way a compliance experts can. We need to have patience and empathy. Here's one that you don't hear often, Tom. Number seven, compliance can be, hurt, can be sexy. Mary's heard it said often that compliance will never be sexy, but she begs to differ. There are so many interesting cases that fall into the mainstream news and affect us all as consumers that we can bring compliance to life and make it relatable and interesting to our customers. Number eight, it's never exactly in the shoes of my, uh, excuse me, eight, I'm never exactly in the shoes of my very valued customer. I'll never likely know what it is like to live off a heavenly commissioned salary or truly feel significant in my heart in the same way that my local colleagues do. But it's better than not trying and if you can still learn a heck of a lot and have a blast anyway. Nine, revenue protection preservation department is critical. Sometimes it has to be enough to know this yourself, even if it doesn't get the same accolades and attention as revenue earning areas of the business. And finally, we can see this one coming, compliance is a dream job. So many different skill sets are triggered, policy drafting, investigations, analysis of facts against legal frameworks, advisory, negotiation, audit, fixing, uh, risk assessment, training, communications, and marketing. The list is endless. What else? Travel opportunities and a seat at the table to protecting the reputation and revenue of a, of a business. Oh, and yes, we are very lucky indeed. Uh, that is Mary's, Mary's set statement, but I would have to say, Tom, for you and I and the ethics and compliance community, we are very lucky indeed that Mary Shirley packed up that suitcase 10 years ago and that she got together with her co-host, Lisa Fine, to bring us wonderful stories from great women in compliance. So thanks, Mary. And uh, we link to this in the show notes on Corporate Compliance Insights. Tom? Sure, Jay. We had a very interesting article from Jennifer Sun posted in CCI about the uh, some of the findings um, that Star Compliance found in a survey of market market survey of compliance professionals asking questions, um, and they got some kind of unexpected answers. So I'm just going to go through these quickly, but it was a little bit surprising, I think. Mm-hmm. One was obviously uh, they're getting a lot more requests for uh, information from their employee base and for potential um, exceptions to uh, policies. Um, That leads to number two, that the exceptions were, for the most part, denied. And that's certainly good because you don't want to create a culture of uh, noncompliance or a culture of exception and override during the uh, coronavirus health crisis. Uh, but that was tempered a little bit because the vast majority of these exceptions came from the EMEA region. And for those of you who've never worked overseas, that's Europe, Middle East, and Asia. Uh, And fully 40% of those reporting said it was that region alone which generated the most policy exceptions. Um, They, in addition to being very busy around uh, requests for exceptions, progress and projects march on that... uh, Obviously, business is continuing, 
and the cutting in spending in order to remain cash positive, uh, companies are still uh, ha- going forward with business. Um, they believe, or they found rather, that complexity needs proximity, and that <clears throat> that is speaks to the work from home culture. Uh, and really, the the one item they found that it was difficult to uh, master or overcome around um, the work from home culture is not distributing policies and procedures, but communicating the why of policies. And that's something that this group of compliance officers found best uh, done in person. And then finally, uh, technology is going to be the key going forward. And I think that probably is not a surprising finding, Jay. It's certainly what I believe uh, is going to be one of the largest outcomes of the coronavirus health crisis for the compliance professional. And when you couple it with the 2020 evaluation of corporate compliance programs released July, June 1, excuse me, you see the Department of Justice focusing more on access to data by compliance programs and compliance practitioners in the corporate setting. And so um, I think that is going to speed almost exponentially the growth of compliance officers who have to be data savvy, data analytics savvy, and then use data analytics not only for continuous monitoring, but continuous improvement going forward. Yeah, we we really are in a very interesting time right now where that uh, data comes back to us in real time and those companies that are able to um, mobilize the data can really get better results. Uh, Coinciding with the launch of uh, Conversance Converge uh, community, we've got a white paper that came our way today called The New Normal, An Ethical Revolution in Business. Is this the dawning of the age of integrity? This comes to us from our colleagues, Jane Mitchell and Philip Winterburn. And they decide to take a look at the change that is happening all across our country in 2020. If you're skeptical that change will be forced upon you, Reflect a moment on what has happened around the world since this year began. There is a direct correlation between the effectiveness of leadership to what extent a country has been affected. In the USA and the UK, we have some of the highest numbers of cases of death per capita, where leaders have initiated a clear response with clarity and guidelines such as lockdown and social distancing, the positive effects are felt. With much of the world stuck at home and eager for a change, the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis lit a match, both unexpected and unforgettable, for the movement against inequality and racism. Changes you may have never thought possible will become manifest, and as we've seen since the beginning of 2020, changes will happen more swiftly than ever. Uh, In this white paper, they've collated feedback and questions that were raised during sessions, and came to the conclusion that there's a groundswell of interest in exactly how compliance teams can light the spark and maintain the theme of ethical transformation within their companies. We've spent subsequent weeks developing a roadmap for ethical translation in our profession, an outline of the journey from where compliance stands now to a better future. Only through the collective intelligence and bravery of the ethics and compliance community will we successfully craft a vision for the future of our profession and of our organizations. Although this might sound daunting, this is also an opportunity to transition from risk reduction focus, compliance as a cost center, to value augmentation, compliance as a revenue protector. The Business Roundtable announced in 2019 
that they have transitioned to a new era of capitalism, one that no longer is solely focused on shareholder returns. It is widely recognized that intangible assets account for the majority of the value in the major global indices. Protecting and driving the value of your brand has never been more critical. Consumers are also well-informed and care about the environmental and society impact of organizations and how they run their business. They are making conscious choices to purchase from companies that are aligned with their beliefs and values. Now, companies recognize that reputations depend on developing trust and maintaining the goodwill of all stakeholders. Some companies have taken the time to clarify a meaningful purpose. Some others have even used iconic brands to reinforce government health messages. Others have shifted their day-to-day capabilities to support emergency services. The same corporate response excuse me, followed the protest after George Floyd's death. These measures of support and commitment cause only to resonate and the corporate actions will follow. The authors would suggest that those companies with a strong sense of purpose, living values, and a clear mission will be more likely to thrive, let alone simply survive through this phase of turmoil. Employees today want to work for companies that have a higher purpose, and they want to trust that their company will stand up for what is right and take a stand on the critical issues of the day. In short, the world is turned on its axis. We have all been forced to look at the way we live and work. Leaders in society, government, and organizations have come to implement change in ways many of them had never, had had been adamant was impossible. By and large, we have proven to be resilient, resourceful, humane, and empathetic. There is a newfound consciousness and authenticity and an appreciation of people that keep us going, people who previously had not been given the respect they deserve. So this is the world we are now operating in. And I think as we've shown from a couple of stories already this week, uh, there's an exciting role for ethics and compliance people to play in it. Tom, we're at the part of the podcast now where we talk about some of the podcasts this week. Uh, first off, can you tell us about uh, Scott Sullivan and his journey on the compliance life? Sure. We uh, posted part three this week of Scott's journey. And in this episode, it's really interesting, Jay, because he talks about who and what skills a CCO, not a CCO needs, but what his team needs. And so he talks about how he augments the talents he might bring or a CCO might bring with talents of your compliance team to really fill that out. So I thought that was really interesting. Over on the 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, Jay, this, this month we're focusing, as you know, on third parties and uh, it's sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. On Monday, I had a guest, um, uh, Linda Justice from Dow Jones, talk to us about the ROI of third-party compliance. And indeed, on Tuesday, I had uh, your colleague, Eric Feldman, as a guest. And Eric talked to us about uh, third-party partners as innovation partners or third parties as innovation partners. And Eric uh, actually had specific experience of that in his IG or Inspector General days. On Wednesday, I talked about third-party risk expansion. Thursday, terminating third parties. And then Friday, uh, distributor compensation. So an interesting week on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. Uh, We've got a couple of – go ahead. I said we've got a couple of webinars coming up that we'd love to share with our listeners. First one, uh, we have something from K2 Intelligence, a thin webinar with AIBACP, Pandemics to Receptions, 
recession, sorry, finding AML and ABC synergies in tough times. This is a week from Thursday, July 30th, from 1.30 p.m. to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the hosts are Joe Ann Taylor and Adam Fry. Registration and information links are provided. And Tom, why don't you tell us about something else that is also happening on the 30th next week? So Jay, uh, Affiliated Monitors is sponsoring ECI's Best Practices Forum, a Q&A with Brian Rabbit. Brian's the Acting Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division. Uh, he's going to talk about the FCPA Resource Guide Second Edition. He's going to be interviewed by Pat Harned, uh, president of uh, ECI, who will chair the event. And um, Brian took Brian Binskowski's place in the Department of Justice. So uh, for those interested in more information on the second edition of the FCPA Resource Guide, this will be the uh, podcast for you. Um, with that, Jay, you want to take us home? Sure. On behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 215 for the week ending July 24th, 2020, the Something's Burning edition. Uh, as Tom and I continue to broadcast from two of the uh, coronavirus hotspots in Texas and Los Angeles, uh, we are safely self-isolating. We hope that you too are as well, and that we wish that you're safe, that you're healthy, and that we will speak with you again next week and tell you more about this week at FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me, Tom Fox, at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. We also got a new really cool app on the Compliance Podcast Network website where you can leave a voicemail or a message if you'd like to ask us a question or have a topic you would like us to consider. I hope you'll join us again next week when Jay and I look at some of the top compliance and ethics stories for the week that is to become. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.